0: This program is a paid commercial announcement from Jacob Media Partners and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, physicians, products, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician.
1: Talk Radio 1210, WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia, a radio.com station. Live from the Malamut and Associates Law Studios, it's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Sunday morning at 10. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne
2: Ritchie. That is a very, very robust, vigorous, achoo, sneeze. That's what that is. And that's not what we're talking about.
1: Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. And on a Sunday morning, good morning everyone, we are live and local on this Sunday here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, this is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne. Doc, a good Sunday morning to you, I know we're uh, packed for the show today, let me turn it right over to you.
3: Thank you, Joe, and good morning on this beautiful Sunday to you and our listeners, excuse me, COVID 19 continues to dominate the news and every aspect of life. <clears throat> Sorry. Today, we bring you more important information about the effect of the pandemic on you and the world around you. <clears throat> Excuse me. First, we're very fortunate that Dr. Ed Jasper is making a return visit. Dr. Jasper is an associate professor and the Director of Emergency Management and Disaster Preparedness at Jefferson. Initially, he was the COVID Task Force Director for all 14 Jefferson hospitals, a role he now shares with other physicians at Jefferson. We'll also hear about work on a COVID-19 vaccine from Dr. Richard Nettles, the Vice President of Medical Affairs for Janssen, the Pharmaceutical Division of Johnson & Johnson. Welcome Dr. Ed Jasper. Ed, it sounds like I need a doctor today. (laughs) We last spoke about three weeks ago, close to the end of the 15 days to slow the spread. The data was reviewed and it was decided to add another 30 days. Ed, we're seeing a sign of plateau and new cases across the country as a whole. What pattern are you seeing in Philadelphia and at the Jeff hospitals in particular?
0: Well, Marianne, we're we're fortunate in that regard. I mean, it's bad that we are still seeing some increased number of cases, but but we've been fortunate to avoid what other places, like in Italy, Northern Italy, Seattle, New York, what they saw was a relative quiet, and then suddenly over just a few days, uh, they were inundated with cases that took up all their ICU beds, their ventilators, and really stressed the resources. What we're seeing in in Philadelphia and the local regions are a more gradual increase so the numbers are increasing but not to the level that overwhelms us which allows us to provide a higher level of care
3: yeah and ed you've been one of the important leaders in our city networking with city officials the department of health and leaders from other hospital systems on a regular basis and thanks to great planning our stockpile of masks and ventilators have really put us in good shape to fight this virus head on
0: yeah, I mean, we have been fortunate in that regard, but but even within our health system, uh, w- which was fairly well prepared, we're starting to run into the same shortages as everyone else uh, with extended use of masks. Uh, we've tried to buy everything we can, so has everyone else. Um, we've had some donations, which have been really uh, much appreciated. Uh, so everybody now is at the stage where we're extending the use of masks, reusing them, looking at ways to clean them so we don't have to throw them out um, after each day. So PPE, personal protective equipment, is really a a major uh, problem for everyone, um, although we've been able to hold our own and protect our staff.
3: Well, what's interesting is for our listeners, Thomas Jefferson University uh, in June of 2017 uh, acquired philadelphia university formerly known as textile university a center for studying architecture design engineering textiles health and sciences and on april one it was announced that their school of design and engineering established two teams at now jefferson university one team jeff mask is working to create masks face shields protective suits and Jeff Vent is a team working to develop ventilator equipment in case we need additional support. And that's just fantastic. What a time for us to all be one university.
1: Joe, you want to ask a question? Uh, talking with Dr. Ed Jasper here on your radio doctor. Doc, I want to just follow up on your conversation or your reference to masks. As you know now, in the state of Pennsylvania, uh, the governor, governor Wolf's mandate across uh, the Commonwealth is now um, requiring all of us uh, listening to the show, all of us sitting at home uh, to now wear some sort of a mask or face covering. Uh, at any point when we go out into a business an essential business such as uh, a food store what what suggestions do you have doc uh, uh about that i don't re- i don't feel as though everybody's going to be able to run out and order six or eight masks uh for their families um what's your thoughts on how they can effectively do that
0: yeah well that's a very important question and um The the main reason for wearing a mask out in public is to protect others from your droplets when you speak, when you breathe, when you cough. So by catching those droplets uh, in some type of material, uh, you can prevent that from contaminating surfaces and exposing people that are close to you within a few feet. They're different than the N95 masks that we use in the hospital, which are actually respirators. Uh, Those things are designed and rated to protect the wearer from fine particles that may be suspended in the air so it, it almost doesn't matter completely for the for people out on the street walking around the specifics of their mask it's just that they cover their face block some of the droplets and another important effect of wearing a mask is that it prevents you from touching your mouth and face which is another way to transmit the virus to yourself
3: and, and you know um ed Uh, For our listeners, we have virtual town hall meetings, and Dr. Jasper does a beautiful job explaining these principles, that if you have a bigger droplet when you cough or sneeze, those droplets can travel a few feet but then fall to the ground. It's those tiny aerosolized particles that can travel farther. And the point here is that's why it's so important to both wear the mask but still do social distancing. Both are important. So if you're starting to wear masks, don't think that you can – become lax about getting too close to people. So at the mayor's press conference on Friday, Dr. Tom Farley, the health commissioner of Philadelphia, was very wise in saying, before we gradually reopen, first, we need adequate testing to know where the virus is, which makes perfect sense. So his message was, we need more testing, and it has to be faster, not waiting two to five days. So here's my question for you. We know that they've developed a faster swab test for your throat or or nose. But up to forty percent of the time it's it's wrong. It says it's it's negative but people have COVID. And as you mentioned in our conversations before, up to forty plus percent of people have no symptoms. So this means people can have COVID with a negative test and no symptoms and still be sharing the virus. So what do we rely on to really reopen the country? Maybe the the blood tests for antibodies, and how accurate are they?
0: Yeah, well, well, thanks, Mary. And you you bring up a a good point, and there's just one point I want to make, and that is there really aren't any experts at COVID. You see this on TV, and people come out, and they give numbers, like the specific sensitivities and case fatality rates and all that stuff. But we really just don't know. There are no experts with this disease. We don't know how it's going to play out, whether it's going to slow down in the summer or not, like some other coronaviruses. So people should be wary about what they hear on the news from people that are claiming to be experts because we've never seen this disease before. But as far as the testing goes, there are a lot of different tests that have come out very quickly and the smoke still hasn't cleared on them all yet, but some of them are very good. The only way to know the true sensitivity is to know exactly the number of people that have it and then do the test and see what percent you pick up. But since we really don't know the exact number of habits, as you pointed out, there's so many Asymptomatic cases, there's no way to tell what the sensitivity is of the test. We have some estimates, best guess estimates, and you're right. Somewhere around the 60 to 70 percent for the nasal swabs is probably pretty close. But again, if there's more uh, asymptomatic people that have had it than we were estimating, then that sensitivity could go down. Um, so we're not sure. There are blood tests now for antibodies. That would be a definitive test. And they're about a week or two, they exist, but we're about a week or two away from knowing which are the ones that are most sensitive and specific versus those that aren't as good. So very soon we will have some pretty quick tests that will give us the answers we're looking
3: for. Well, and and I think because we're all becoming used to instant gratification if i don't know something go to google if i want something delivered to my door hey within 24 hours there's no quick easy answer to any of this it's a real uh, delicate balance as to know of course open reopening the economy uh people are suffering and and losing paychecks and businesses and it's a very delicate uh dance um for our listeners visit the website put out by the City of Philadelphia, philadelphia philadelphia.org, type in COVID, and it will bring a a chart that tells you who should be tested and where and lots of great information that you should be aware of. Um, Ed, thank you so much. I think the the antibodies, just for our listeners again, when you have a swab test of your nose or throat um, or even sputum, it tells you whether the virus is there or not. But just to review... The blood test looks for whether your immune system is reacting, and that's what antibodies are. So let's hope, as you say, within the next week or two, we'll have clearer information so we can identify where the virus is and gradually reopen. Ed, thank you so much. You're a huge help to us. And as I always say, what I love about you is you bring great comfort in your um, comments and admit that nobody's an expert, and we just have to be patient and wait and see.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
3: Thank you, Ed. Stay well.
1: You Mm -hmm. too. Bye. Good conversation, live conversation here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT with Dr. Ed Jasper. We certainly thank uh, everybody for tuning in and listening this morning to uh, your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne. We're going to get to our first commercial break uh, in the show. Lots of conversation ahead after the break. On the other side of the break, uh, Dr. Rick Nettles joined Dr. Marianne for a uh, strong intense good conversation uh, about a vaccine Uh, so we'll get the very latest there and then later on how does COVID-19 show itself uh, through GI we'll have that conversation one on one in a rapid fire session with Dr. Marianne at the end of the show back in a moment. And welcome back, everyone, to this live edition of your Radio Doctor as we broadcast to you on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT. Don't forget if you missed any of the uh, opening segment where Dr. Marianne and Dr. Ed Jasper uh, updated you on the very latest right to the minute. Um, you can always go to Radio.com. It's Your Radio Doctor on Demand, or you can go to YourRadioDoctor.com uh, and the full podcast or the full broadcast of today's show and all of the shows that air here on Talk Radio 1210 WPHT, uh, they will be posted. As we roll along on this Sunday morning, I'm going to turn back over the control uh to uh, Dr. Mary Ann's going to bring you an interview that she did uh, with Dr. Rick, Rick Nettles. Uh, with that, I'll let her get into the conversation, into the interview uh, for you uh, to enjoy and to learn.
3: Welcome back. It gives me great pleasure to introduce our next guest, Dr. Richard Nettles. We're all familiar with Johnson & Johnson, one of the largest and most broadly based healthcare companies in the world and it's aimed for over 130 years to keep people of all ages well. Now, Johnson & Johnson has three major sectors, one that produces medical devices and then consumer products like baby shampoo, but Johnson & Johnson offers more than baby powder. There's also a sector that produces pharmaceuticals. Dr. Rick Nettles is the Vice President of Medical Affairs for Janssen Infectious Diseases, the pharmaceutical portion of Johnson & Johnson. In this role, he leads the U.S. Infectious Diseases Medical Affairs Team, which enables Janssen to provide safe and effective infectious disease products throughout the United States. Rick has more than 10 years of experience in pharmaceuticals. Prior to joining Johnson & Johnson in 2011, he held various positions of increasingly more responsible uh, roles for Bristol-Myers Squibb, including research and development leadership roles in virology, or the study of viruses, for that company's discovery medicine, clinical pharmacology, and global clinical research organizations. Before that, we know that Rick was one of the Fighting Irish, a graduate of the University of Notre Dame. After medical school and internal residency at Duke University, he was a fellow in infectious diseases at Johns Hopkins University, where he then served as an assistant professor of medicine in the infectious diseases division at Johns Hopkins, and he attended the Johns Hopkins HIV Clinic. Welcome, Rick. It's really wonderful to have you here today.
2: Yeah, it's nice to be here with you today. Thank you for having me.
3: Well, since the early days of the outbreak of COVID-19, Johnson & Johnson has been working with industry partners, government, organizations, and health authorities to help this rapidly moving COVID-19 pandemic, um, try to bring it to an end. Um, The U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, and you're collaborating with Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center in Boston. Tell us, you've you've announced that you have a lead candidate coronavirus vaccine. How did you get to this point, and where do we go from here?
2: Yes, absolutely. So, J&J does have a multi-pronged approach to try to um, bring an end to this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, and one of the most important prongs of that approach is the development of a, of a vaccine. Um, J&J has been working on developing vaccines for other infectious diseases in the recent past. And so that would include trying to develop a vaccine against Ebola and Zika, and HIV, and a respiratory infection called RSV. Mm -hmm. So we had all of these other vaccines in development. When we saw the uh, emerging infection out of China, um, we were able to take advantage of the Chinese releasing the genetic sequence for the coronavirus, and we're able to incorporate that target into the vaccine that we had been developing for the other disease areas, um, and so we, we have this vaccine platform uh, that's based on a common cold virus, um, and you're able to take out a piece of the uh, of the genetic code of the common cold virus and plug in a piece of the coronavirus, um, it's so and uh, and to then me, yeah. use that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then use that as the vaccine.
3: I know that I read uh, about Dr. Stoffels, um, and is he the lead uh, investigator? Dr. Paul Stoffels. Dr.
2: Dr. Stoffels is uh, the the lead of all R and D at J and J.
3: Right, the chief scientist. So officer.
2: certainly mm-hmm. Yeah. So he's I'm
3: certainly sorry,
2: George. To this
3: yes, and I'm, I apologize to Dr. Nettles and our listeners. We're we're trying to be good citizens and with social distancing. We're on uh, phones that might collide a little, so I apologize if I sound like I interrupted you, Dr. Nettles. I did read that um, in the past, now SARS, or we might call it SARS-1, if this is SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus in 2002 through 2003, that Johnson & Johnson, or I guess Janssen, had worked on a vaccine then and had come pretty close, but then no reported cases after 2004. Did that help to jumpstart the process for this coronavirus?
2: Well, I, I think we learned a lot um, from other recent outbreaks. Um, and, and really, the, the, the biggest uh, jumpstart for us was that, um, that platform, that vaccine platform that I was describing, because mm-hmm. we've been able to, um, to put that into clinical trials. More than 50,000 people have experienced that vaccine. So we have a pretty good idea that that platform is safe. Um, and so that allows us to very quickly swap out uh, a piece of of the gene that maybe had been targeting Zika or or, or HIV, and and now really focus on the coronavirus. I see. Um, we, we, we are also uh, targeting uh, a conserved a part of the coronavirus, that spike protein that you might have heard people talking about on the news, which is an important yeah. part of the structure for this one.
3: And that was my question. Well, and not that those kind of details uh, matter, or matter to the average listener, but I wonder what you're targeting. It's, so it's the spikes on the protein, or sorry, the spikes on yeah. the uh, surface of virus.
2: Yeah, that's right. The, the, really the important thing when you're developing a vaccine is you try, to, you try to target a part of the virus that the virus can't change or mutate easily. And that appears to be a relatively conserved or consistent region that the virus really needs to survive. Yes. So that ensures your your vaccine will, will work, even if the, the, the virus mutates or changes over time.
3: And I guess, too, when a, a scientist looks at uh, therapy, you can either stop a virus from replicating and reproducing, or you can um, keep one of those spikes from attaching where it likes to enter a cell, or you can rev up a person's immune system and say, okay, we're not going to get all inflammatory here. So it sounds like you're, your best success will be with the, uh, keeping the spikes from doing their job.
2: yeah, exactly and and what we're trying to do is um, is to have the individual's immune system prepared so that if they encounter the coronavirus through an infection that occurs in the natural world, their immune system is very quickly able to rev up and uh, prevent it from from infecting you.
3: Yes, and recognize the incoming coronavirus or yeah. whatever it is. So yeah. I know that Johnson & Johnson is looking to manufacture a global supply of more than a billion doses of this vaccine. Can you describe the technology you're using to develop the vaccine and, and what you're doing to scale up manufacturing?
2: Yeah, so here's another um, advantage that, that this vaccine has is our capability to scale up and produce very large quantities of the vaccine, mm-hmm. um, and that has become important with with other outbreaks in the recent past, like Ebola. Um, we have a, a, a cell line that we're able to produce very large quantities of the vaccine in a relatively small space. So you you may know that in, in the past, or with vaccines that have been produced long ago, they were produced in chicken eggs, and yeah. that manufacturing process obviously required a a huge number of eggs and a a very large footprint in your factory. This cell line allows us to produce much greater quantities in a much faster time in a much smaller space. Um, And so we we, right now, with the capacity we have in Leiden, which is in Europe, uh, we're, we're able to produce enough of this vaccine that we hope to have 600 million doses of the vaccine by the end of the year. Um, and in addition to that, we're going to, um, produce additional vaccine production capabilities, one place in the U.S. and at least one place in Asia. So with that additional capacity, then we hope to be able to, um, to scale this up so we could have a a billion doses of the vaccine produced by next year. The other thing that, the one other thing that's important to say is uh, in, in usual times, you would wait until after the results of your clinical trials to know that the vaccine worked before you would begin to scale it up. And in this instance, we're not doing that. We're actually producing the vaccine at risk, already starting. And then when we see that the vaccine works in a clinical trial, if it works, we'll have it ready to begin. You're ready. To, sure. To,
3: that makes perfect sense. And you have enough experience and enough memory from the, the other vaccines that you Uh, can make an educated uh, guess to go forward with this. So what do we know so far in terms of the virus and how long a vaccine might work? And if we don't finish now, we'll take a little break and come back. But um, if somebody is vaccinated, and maybe we don't know yet, would it be a yearly vaccine or uh, like a permanent one like chickenpox or measles? Can we guess how long the effect of the vaccine would protect us?
2: Yeah, it's really one of the most important questions facing us right now with coronavirus. Even with natural infection, people do develop um, immunity to it, but how long that immunity lasts, we just don't know because exactly. this infection uh, is so new. So we we will find that out as we move forward in the clinical trials with our vaccine. Um, yeah. But right now, I just can't answer. It, it could it could be one or the other of the extremes that you provided.
3: Yes, and, and, you know, it could be like a, a seasonal uh, virus and need an annual vaccine like the flu. And, um, and I guess we don't have enough data yet to know if a person, as you say, is uh, infected, how long their natural immunity lasts either. Let's take a little break, Dr. Nettles. Thank you so much, Dr. Nettles, from Janssen, uh, Division of Johnson & Johnson, and we'll be right back after the break.
1: And back here live on a Sunday morning, this is your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Thank you so much uh, for tuning in. Don't forget rapid fire one-on-one with the doc uh, coming up in our final segment today. Right now, we're going to return back uh, to part two uh, of the conversation as it continues and rolls on. Dr. Marianne Ritchie uh, and Dr. Rick Nettles in a great conversation. Dr. Rick Nettles from J&J. Back in.
3: And welcome back to our listeners. We are very happy to have Dr. Rick Nettles, the Vice President of Medical Affairs for Janssen Infectious Diseases, a subsidiary of Johnson & Johnson. Rick, we were making great progress talking about the effect of the vaccine, and we talked about people who have had coronavirus and wondering how long their own immune system will protect them if this becomes a seasonal virus. Um, Let's talk, too, about... um, how the vaccine uh, that, that Johnson & Johnson and Janssen Pharmaceuticals is working on, how might that be administered? By injection or, you know, there's talk about this micro needle array technique?
2: This will be uh, fairly straightforward. So this will be an injection. Think of it like uh, your regular annual flu shot.
3: Mm-hmm. So I know, I think it was the University of Pittsburgh has a little – uh, it looks like the size of a postage stamp with tiny needles on it. Um, is there any value to that work, or would that be more user-friendly to, to say, children?
2: Well, you know, I, I think the important thing right now is that we move forward, all different companies and approaches move forward to to mm-hmm. try to find the most effective approach sure. to developing a vaccine, because we just mm-hmm. don't know which is going to work the best. Right, um, right. So- yeah, so I, I, where J&J is, we, we're encouraging all of us to move forward on different yeah. approaches. And like you right. said, one may work better for children or be more tolerated for children, uh, yeah. Um, yeah. Or, or one might work a little better than the other. And, you know, look, we need, we need a lot of these vaccines for everybody around the world. Yeah. Um, so the more the better in, in companies and approaches that we're taking to develop a vaccine.
3: Exactly. And I'm sure your scientists are reviewing the pathophysiology or the method that corona uh, displays itself to determine how we can reduce the severity of disease, but also how we can improve survival for those people who are really, uh, have the extreme symptoms.
2: Yeah, absolutely. and And, you know, that, that sort of gets back to where we started this conversation on J and J taking a multi-pronged approach. So um, the first approach is to develop a vaccine, which could prevent people from getting infected. But now we're moving into a discussion about what can we do once somebody is already infected. Mm -hmm. Um, And, and so a couple of, uh, of approaches we're taking right now. One is we have a screening tool uh, trying to find medicines that uh, might have antiviral activity against the coronavirus. Right. And we're screening J&J's entire library of antiviral compounds. And um, we're also making that um, screening tool available to other pharmaceutical companies if they want to screen their compounds as well. Um, I and see. so we'll screen them as fast as we can we'll yes. start with compounds that are already on the market because we have a great safety data set available to sure. those compounds and they're, they're already available for us to use.
3: Yes. And
2: then we'll move into compounds that are in clinical trials and then further into the library of things that aren't in clinical trials yet.
3: Okay. Um,
2: so that's, one. you know, the other approach is that this is happening all over the world where desperate physicians are trying medicines to save the, the patients in the ICU, and, and sometimes they see some successes. So in, in whenever that is reported to us at J&J and an investigator wants to um, to investigate further potential for some of the J&J drugs, maybe it's an immunologic drug to try to deal with this severe respiratory syndrome that's happening in, in people who are on the ventilators. Yes. Um, we're open to collaborate with those those centers Uh, and put forward clinical trials as fast as we can to really know do do our medicines help or not. Right.
3: Well, that's wonderful to know because uh, all these things you're telling us bring people great comfort in this time of anxiety because you have the experience, you have the collaborative effort, and it's global. I mean, just everything you describe is fantastic. So back to the vaccine, I, I would guess that in the future, um, I know that your goal is to provide a solution for patients now, but also to ins- ensure future generations to not have to live in fear of the, the potentially uh, fatal consequences of a virus like this. Um, what would you guesstimate would be a time for say the initial trials and, and possible emergency use?
2: Yeah, um, that's a good question too. Um, we, we, We selected our lead candidate vaccine in early April. The phase one clinical trial, that's the first trial where you get into people, uh, will begin by September of this year. Mm -hmm. And then if that's a success, we see that there's an immunologic response and that it's safe. We look to make the vaccine available through an emergency use access program uh, early in 2021.
3: Wow. That seems like a miracle to me because I know I I have... I'm sorry.
2: No, I was going to say, you know, you you were talking about some of the the things that have happened during this coronavirus outbreak that are on the positive side, and collaboration with federal governments around the world and other pharmaceutical companies is at an all-time high right now, but also speed to try to find solutions is at an all-time high as well. So people are trying as hard as they can to find a solution.
3: Well, and I think... um as you say, when well, we have a con- nothing like a common enemy to bring us together. Um, but the vaccine, I know I have guests coming up in the near future uh, from Jefferson, where I'm an- attending in gastroenterology, who have created a vaccine for colon cancer with great progress in uh, animal models and a small uh, study in uh, patients. And it's taken them over 20 years. And I think the listeners need to understand, I think we're in a, a world where there's not as much delay in gratification. If you want to look something up, Google will tell you in seconds. <laughs> you know, you want to order food, it's delivered to your home, and that kind of thing. People are learning from listening to you that we're making fast progress. It's not going to be done overnight, and just to have emergency use by early 2021 is beyond super science. It's, it's magnificent. This means people working 25 hours a day. But aside from... Yeah, they're, they're um, working. Yeah. The,
2: the other thing I'd say, the last thing about the vaccine is that, um, you know, we, we need to make sure that we have uh, good access. People can get the yes. vaccine and afford the vaccine. And, and J&J has committed that during this period of time where the vaccine needs to be made available as an emergency use product, that we would make it available at a not-for-profit so it's it's, uh, it's an important commitment from the company during this time of need.
3: Sure. And I know healthcare professionals are on the front line, as are many people in our uh, world, but the J&J is making heroic efforts uh, through Janssen to control the spread of the virus and to treat those who are infected. But how does Johnson & Johnson also step up to support healthcare workers and um other products that keep people safe.
2: Yeah, um, so th- this becomes very personal, because many of us working at Johnson and Johnson are healthcare providers ourselves, or we have family members who are, mm-hmm. um, so a couple of a couple of simple ways that the company has tried to contribute. Um, we have um, made available a, a personal leave policy, so employees who are healthcare professionals can. Take time off from J and J and go and serve on the front lines if they want to do that. Oh, it's beautiful. Um, we've <clears throat> we've committed two hundred fifty million dollars um, to support uh, healthcare workers, uh, and that had been done in January of twenty twenty. And a few weeks ago, we upped that to uh, an additional fifty million dollars to support uh, primary focus on frontline healthcare workers. Some of that support will. Go to the Community Foundation of New Jersey Disaster Response Fund. Um, you know other other things that are that are not easily thought about, but we have made sure that our drug supply is stable. Uh, and so for those individuals that are currently on a and J product that has nothing to do with the COVID 19, we, we've uh, made sure that 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 drug supply is is secure. And we won't run out of those products during this time of uncertainty. And, again, um, I, I how that reassuring
3: of- that is to our listeners to know that, that you've put that into the plan. Sorry to interrupt.
2: Yeah, I, I agree. It is reassuring because um, the last thing you want to know is is that you're, you're not able to get the drugs that you need for a serious condition. So
1: um,
2: I, I think that's a good example. My favorite example, though, is, is that several of our manufacturing sites, including our Listerine plant right here in Lidditz, Pennsylvania, has temporarily switched the capabilities from producing Listerine to producing hand sanitizer. And we, we did that because we want to make sure those R&D workers who haven't been able to stay at home, they have to go into the lab to work on yes. things like the vaccine. We, we want to make sure that they have hand sanitizer and then anything that's left over, we're donating the bottles to, um, to frontline healthcare workers and, and other community service workers.
3: Well, that's outstanding, and that's. Uh, I'm glad you brought that up because I wondered, I think to myself, um, the people working in the company of the vaccine, and and are increased risk as well. Well, Rick, it's just amazing to hear the whole spectrum of work and dedication of the, the various um, aspects of Johnson & Johnson's work, it is a real pleasure to have a chance to speak with you. And do you promise that you'll come back sometime in the future to, to update us? And uh, I'd love to hear Absolutely. more about Janssen's work and, and all the good work that Johnson Johnson is so generous with the community and donating grants and products to communities around the world. So there's a lot more uh, to the story. And I would love to have you back in the near future because you're really working on to... hmm <laughs>
2: As as long as we can do it in the studio so we don't talk over each other.
3: Oh, wouldn't that be fun? And uh, thank (laughs) you for trying so hard to stem this massive public health threat. Thank you, and thank you to James and um, all the people that have been so helpful in getting your important message out on our show today. Thank you. God bless, and stay well. Take care. Yes, you too. Bye-bye.
1: And back here live on a Sunday morning, this is your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie as we join you on Talk Radio 1210 uh, WPHT. Strong, very powerful and meaningful information today, all going back to uh, the very beginning of the show when Dr. Ed Jasper uh, joined us, Dr. Marianne, to kick off the show and then a fascinating uh, interview um, uh, with uh, the Do- Dr. Nettles from J&J.
3: Thank you, Joe, and thank you for having my voice come back. Good thing I'm not an opera star. Uh, um, I'd like to share a few details about COVID symptoms that people might not be aware of. Joe, do you know anybody who's had COVID? Uh,
1: You know what, Marianne? On my show last night, on my labor show last night, actually, right here, (laughs) um, I had on a labor leader, and uh, and he was talking about both him and his wife, uh, were just now on the upside uh, of making the recovery from COVID-19, but, sh- but struggled. His w- him and his wife, but his wife more than him, uh, struggled for a good period of time before they were able to happily say that they were making a recovery.
3: Oh, I know. They say symptoms can last, or recovery can take four to six weeks if it's moderate or severe. Well, I think most people think the common features are what we see most often are fever, chest pain, dry cough, fatigue. But studies initially from China and now beyond show that many patients also have GI symptoms, diarrhea, vomiting, abdominal pain. And Dr. Sahil Khanna from the Mayo Clinic uh, saw a report the other day, says that many patients have both respiratory and GI symptoms, but up to a third have only GI symptoms. And the other thing to know is the virus can be present in the stool and later in a throat swab, but it may never show up in your throat swab or even a sputum specimen. So if we're finding it in stool samples, we still don't know if that's infectious. But just like droplets, we were talking to Dr. Jasper earlier, droplets from coughing, sneezing, and speaking, we have to assume it can also be spread through stool, meaning if a patient has COVID and all of us, have to practice good hand-washing after using the bathroom or the virus can spread through handshaking, touching surfaces, and preparing food. And the other tough issue is if a patient has just GI symptoms, that person might not go for testing as quickly as those who have cough and fever. So that's the important message I want to share today. If you have GI symptoms out of nowhere, it's really not GI um, virus season and think COVID.
1: Doc, why is that? Why is that now happening? Is that something that was part of it from the beginning, or is that is this something that's evolving with each passing day or each passing hour?
3: Good question, Joe. The way the virus does its thing is it attacks it attaches to receptors on cells that line the lungs and the gut, so we see respiratory and GI symptoms. There's a receptor called ACE2, and it's found in many organs, including the nose and mouth, which raises another issue. Some patients report losing their sense of smell and taste. And the American Academy of Otolaryngology, that's that's the ear, nose, and throat doctors, report mounting evidence from around the world that changes in the ability to smell or taste are significant symptoms seen with COVID. Now, some patients lose their sense of smell but have no other symptoms. So maybe this loss of smell could be a marker in people who are otherwise without symptoms and they would know to isolate and be tested. Um, but but basically, the New England Journal of Medicine and the major GI journals tell us GI symptoms are common and may be the only symptoms. Virus in the stool uh, can last while you're symptomatic and beyond when you're feeling sick, and it can be contagious. So here's a message. Wash your hands, wash your hands. And put the lid down before you flush the toilet so you're not sprayed by toilet water that could contain virus. And for healthcare workers, be so careful when bathing a patient, collecting a stool sample, and watch for being sprayed by air or fluid during colonoscopy.
1: Yeah, Good stuff. And Dr. Marianne, let me get you to also comment. I know we only have a couple of minutes left in the show, but we already referenced it earlier uh, in the show. The uh, state mandate now from Governor Wolf that goes into effect across the Commonwealth uh, this evening uh, is the... Uh, demand or the requirement to wear masks or wear some sort of material that covers your uh, mouth and nose. Dr. Jasper talked about it uh, in our opening segment. Your thoughts uh, about that or perhaps a suggestion or two for the listening audience.
3: I'm a firm believer in wearing masks. Don't be embarrassed. Even if you're out walking your dog, not everybody is conscious when they're on a run to stay six feet apart. It's the combination of mask and Social distancing because, as we said, droplets can travel a certain distance. And if you're wearing a covering on your face, it might not be a tight seal around your face. Wear a mask of some sort, cover your nose and mouth. And Joe, I'd like to move on to um, our new segment called Your Real Champions. Um, We've asked to hear about patients and people who are going the extra mile to fight the virus and doing great things in their community. Today, Lizanne Hagedorn and Erin Hill. The Nutritional Development Services is an agency in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia that has fed the hungry in Philadelphia for since 1971. In fact, for over 30 years, Anne Healy Ayella has been a driving force in their mission to connect resources with feeding children and those in need. Two programs: their community food, uh, sorry, community food program takes generous donations from individuals, schools, and churches to supply local food cupboards and soup kitchens. But their other program is a school meal program. Federal funds provide breakfast and lunches to area schools, child care centers, and shelters throughout the community. But during this time of crisis, it's now called the Emergency Feeding Program for Children. This week's Your Real Champions, Liz Ann Hagedorn, the Executive Director of Nutritional Development Services and Aaron Hill is the local administrator of the USDA's National Lunch Program. So to bring it down to an image for you, in the past 10 years, NDS has provided 77 million meals through their programs. What are their current numbers? Well, during the, m- the week of March 16th, they delivered more than 2,800 meals to 12 sites. When the City of Philadelphia asked for help? They extended their work, and by three weeks later, they tripled to twenty-eight thousand meals, and it went from twenty-eight hundred to twenty-eight thousand meals. That's a nine hundred percent increase, and their goal is to bring it up to thirty-eight thousand meals per week. These are women who, not able to work from home, they go into their office every day. They're accepting the challenges of this critical critical time, and they do it with joy. Um, They're following the guidelines. Um, wearing masks And social distancing They have a delivery system Of grab and go And people can come And get food To feed their children But rather than Talk about themselves They shine the light Of generosity Of their helpers Their volunteers To distribute the meals Liz Hagedorn And Erin Hill Are angels of mercy Doing God's work And we thank them For being your real champions
1: Great way to, to end learn the show more
3: And add support Nutritionaldevelopmentservices.org I ask you to visit philadelphia.org and learn where you can go for testing and also food resources to feed the hungry. Please hang your American flag. Send us pictures to info at your radio doctor and send us stories about your real champions. And remember to tune in every week because your health is your wealth.
1: See you next week, everybody. Thanks for
0: listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, a Jacob Media production.
2: If you're interested in learning more about the power of the Radio Hour, contact Joe Kraus at 267-261-3428. This program is a paid commercial announcement and in no way represents the views of WPHT or its management.